from Madison, Wisconsin in the United States of Global Hegemony, it's Didactic Syncast, with your host Eric P. Hello everybody and welcome to the Didactic Syncast. I'm Eric S. Piotrowski, a.k.a. Duke Scath in the world of video games and... Wikipedia? No, I'm Scartal on Wikipedia. I don't have the script in front of me, people. We got something special coming to you. It's been a long time since I did a show. I know. I'm sorry. I'm working on one. Sort of. I got a lot of things to say about Israel and Palestine and Gaza and Ferguson and a hundred other issues. Um, but I'm writing this book and school's about to start up soon and whatever. I'm hoping to put out a show soon. But uh, in the meantime, I got something special here. I've been a fan of this group Consolidated forever, and I recently had the good fortune to get in touch with Adam Sherborne, who is one of the leaders of that group, and yeah, so what comes next is an hour-long discussion I had with him, and yeah, he's on his cell phone, so this sounds a little murky, but generally speaking, it was an awesome discussion. I don't totally agree with him on everything, you know, humans are bound to disagree about some things here and there, uh, and I think he's really hard on himself, but whatever, it is what it is, and I think he makes a lot of really good points about the world we live in and what music means or doesn't mean or could mean and yeah so enjoy the interview and i'll be back with a show before you know it get in touch please esp at fbesp.org or you can tweet at me at duke scath thanks and enjoy the interview an older male has gone mad crouched on the metal slats at the bottom of his inner chamber number 1164 rocks incessantly and mumbles to himself Hello, everybody, and welcome to the first ever didactic Syncast interview. Uh, this is Eric Piotrowski, and I am completely humbled and honored today uh, to welcome to the show Adam Sherborn. Adam, welcome to the show. Thanks very much for having me. No need for humility. <laughs> well, um, uh, first of all, on the first Consolidated album, you said you would only respond to the name Brian Wilson. Uh, is that still in effect, or should I call you Adam during this discussion? Uh, you can, uh, free music would work better now, and uh, it's funny that uh, that the things that uh, many took for granted as uh, intractable uh, assumptions about you know the music industry and musicians themselves have really gone by the wayside in the last 20 years. And the Brian Wilson thing is uh, similar to things like uh, Spinal Tap. <laughs> right. uh, for old pe- for old people. Uh, Certain, you know, assumptions about the music industry were the same as capitalism, and they were just uh, set in stone. And uh, at around the time the uh, the great wave of file sharing started destroying the recording industry, uh, the sort of uh, unstoppable memories of of these uh, iconic figures or ideas or songs, uh, they also too, uh, you know, uh, they faded into the remote. Uh, nebulous horizontal industry of the internet and so you know as far as i know brian wilson may now be a a a mentally healthy aging musician (laughs) just uh taking his place among millions of others right but uh before yeah before 20 years ago no one would assign him that role because everyone's so busy canonizing 
pop stars, either literally of music or of politics or of history or whatever. Sure. Um, so before we start discussing uh, music and industry, I mean, we've already obviously started a little bit. I want to explain to the listeners how much it means for me to speak to you. Um, as I told you before that we started this discussion, I'm writing a book about my life, and I mentioned your group Consolidated in Chapter 4, so if you don't mind, I want to read a little bit just to start us off. Um, cool. my, first, my first taste in political consciousness came from rap music. I didn't know which power I was supposed to fight when Public Enemy chanted Fight the Power in 1989, but it hit a nerve that remained with me for decades. When I found the world of political hip-hop, artists like Public Enemy and also Paris, KRS-One, Queen Latifah, and Stetsasonic, I started to gain a profound new understanding of both the problems facing our civilization and the tradition of struggle working to solve them. Another music group that deserves credit for my political maturation was a little-known industrial band called Consolidated. Combining noisy beats with beautifully pedantic diatribes against sexism, consumer culture, racism, homophobia, and America number one, their music hit me hard in a personal way. White rappers like Third Base and the Beastie Boys had an attitude toward politics that was distant and tepid. Consolidated, on the other hand, went straight for the jugular in a fiery political assault. While I obviously respected and admired African-American rappers, I understood that black life was something that I did not know firsthand, and I should never pretend to be something I wasn't. Consolidated showed me how white artists could directly challenge white supremacy, how men could challenge patriarchy, how straight folks could wage war on homophobia. If Chuck D was Frederick Douglass, Consolidated became my William Lloyd Garrison. So that's a little explanation of how much the music of Consolidated influenced me, and I want to thank you for all the work you put in to make it happen. Right on. Uh, I think the uh, William Lloyd Garrison is uh, a lofty and inflated comparison, and yet I think uh, both uh, he and Consolidated are in their graves uh, constantly reevaluating the hypocrisy and contradictions that they perpetrated and that resulted in... Uh, you know, less than the ideal outcomes that they sought, uh, but it doesn't mean they didn't spend their lives, you know, trying uh, to make things better. Sure. Um, tell me about your relationship to music growing up. Uh, yeah, sure. Uh, it's pretty simple. I uh, I grew up in America and you know, came of age in the 70s, and, uh, you know, my first uh, two vinyl LPs that uh, I got when I was nine were... Uh, a Partridge Family record and Stevie Wonder's Inner Visions, and so you know from from there uh, I began the long lifelong uh, you know slow and uh, plodding understanding that all culture is black culture in this country and all the white culture is black culture and uh, the fact that I had a Stevie record that I would still listen to every day if I had a record player and that the Partridge Family was this other uh, fictive construct that still, you know, resonated with millions of white kids because that's what they were foresaid. I think that was, you know, uh, probably a common uh, beginning for a lot of folks in the 70s. And it wasn't just music, it was politics and sport to have come up at a time when, uh, you know, in the aftermath of X and King and in the time of Ali and Jabbar and Arthur Ashe, you know, uh, because I grew up around sports, it was, you know, a, really a strong foundation later in life to look back and say, oh, yeah, everything about us is also black culture in this country. And my, you know, I loved uh, all kinds of, uh, you know, funk and R&B and jazz music as a kid. 
And so that became not only the, quote, soundtrack, but it became like a philosophical underpinnings for a life of contradictory pursuits. Mm-hmm. And then your first band was, I don't know if it was your first band, but it was one called Until December. Uh, how did that come about? How, how, how do you feel about that now? Uh, uh, it came about because I was 22 years old and starving and high on drugs and needed to make a move as a young person, you know, on, in a capitalist world trying to make something happen. And for a couple of years, uh, you know, my opinion of it then hasn't changed much from now. It, uh, it was musically infantile and it was, uh, basically meth and gay disco wrecking my life, <laughs> but it okay. seemed to make a lot of other people happy, you know, right. so it, uh, it went on a bit longer than it could have. And, uh, and yet at the same time, it left such a sour taste in my mouth. It completely in, uh, informed the creation of Consolidated and the purpose of Consolidated is something that wanted to comment on the effects of being in the music industry and the effects of growing up in a culture defined by pop life and by racism and by great black music and by interior white imitation of it. Sure. Um, and so, yeah, that's actually my next question in terms of the impulse behind Consolidated. You refer to it as a collective, and I'm just, for those who aren't familiar with the idea of a music band being a collective, I wonder if you could sort of explain why that was so central to your early vision. Well, because uh, the only facts that I had learned from being in the previous band and on a major label was that not only was my band not driving or uh, decisive in the trajectory of that band's course, but uh, it, you know, it just, uh, you know, think of how to say this, it, it proves that uh, you're a small being that's uh, so formed, even in the womb, by giant institutional and ideological forces mm. that even if you get there and try to control it, it's out of your control. And sadly, I found, you know, the same exact experience in Consolidated. I just, uh, I got to a place where the group as a quote collective, one, you know, once we signed the first deal and, and made the first consumer product, it was pretty much downhill from there. But the downhill aspect of it was something that the three of us uh, thought was instructive. It was funny. It was humiliating. And, and, you know, it uh, it resulted in us at least as a band that was going to suffer the old Spinal Tap consequences. It allowed us uh, enough frustration with that experience to try, you know, other tactics to politicize the arena, like giving the mic to the audience, like being involved uh, in organizational and street-level politics as the music. And so I don't, you know, I don't claim that... Uh, a, that we ended up really being a collective. We were kind of a band, and a band, in so many cases, if you're a band, you're a hierarchy on many levels, you're a corporate entity, uh, you're, you're battling technocratic forces that uh, kind of uh, require you to use machines and live at the speed of uh, you know emerging technocratic society, but then the minute you agree to go along with that, you've lost control of the machines and the machines control you mm. so it was a yeah it was a, a very humbling experience for us but you know i had the arrogant white privilege to go try to be helpful and useful as did mark and phil and you know we ran it into the ground and, and uh, ran it down and uh that experience uh, absolutely inspired me you know in the subsequent years to 
keep holding on to some of the basic principles of how it is related to life and how it it announces life to come. It uh, comments on life that's happening, and uh, you know the humiliations, failures, and and corporate hypocrisy that we did agree to, even though we knew it was wrong, definitely energized me uh, in the future to look deeper into the relation between music and life. Sure, and and I, you know, I, I, it saddens me to hear that it obviously it was such an unpleasant experience for you because I can certainly say as I said before that it really provided me some important energy and insight um, that I wouldn't I wasn't getting from anywhere else um, so yeah. same, same here I, I don't mean to diminish uh, the experience it was a, a large one for all three of us and uh, and we got just as much if not way more inspiration and education just from you know hanging with folks like you outside of the music sure but then, uh, you know, that points up an immediate sort of problematic uh, issue, which is the band is always separate from the audience, and mm. that was uh, a problem. Sure. And so post-consolidated, you know, I've uh, tried to, you know, be honest in examining the things that really hindered uh, communication among people, and, uh, you know, all capitalist industries require stars and consumers and stuff like that, so the lessons of consolidated definitely not lost and definitely not uh, diminished uh, by, you know, if you were the ass clan on stage being mocked, it tended to get kind of fatiguing after seven or eight years. Oh, sure. But then we put a, we put ourselves there, and that was our just reward. Hmm. How would you describe your approach to the balancing act of message versus aesthetics? Um, I'm thinking especially about the kind of shift we saw a little bit on business of punishment, which was less, I mean, there's tracks on friendly fascism and even play more music, which are just sort of like straight diet discourses or monologues. Yeah, well, uh, that whole process was simply that. It changed all the time. Uh, you know, it's changed so much since then uh, that those times actually seem like a condensed area with some unified thematic sort of uh, ideas. But at the time, when we put out a three-song EP that was identified as industrial, it immediately fed us into a genre or an area. And then we showed up and saw that our music had the predictably fascist response among the artists, uh, the audience rather, and we all agreed that that wasn't cool and that, and that B, we were creatively limited, you know, immediately by being categorized. So... I think, you know, uh, I don't know how many other bands were doing that, but we were constantly seeking to aesthetically distance ourselves from our perceived aesthetics mm -hmm. and to just at least try to make some various uh, uh, statements with sound and text that not only de-emphasize the, the one sound of the band, but also attempted to de-emphasize the need for a sound in a band. And then eventually it became clear that the real culprit was the existence of bands themselves. Right. But that didn't get addressed until the end of Consolidated, and it's been a 20-year process uh, to keep working on that uh, for me since then. Sure. And that sort of brings me to think about the first track on Play More Music. If you'll allow me, it's 30 seconds. I just want to play a little clip of this. Hi, here's my point, guys, all right? The fact of the matter is you stand up here on stage and you preach to everybody about anti-fascism in America's legacy over the last 40 years. Man, if you don't like it here, don't live here, you know. What you have to understand is there's always... So just... I mean, I'd tell you to go f*** yourself, but I'm not going to do that, so... 
because I know there's always an alternate viewpoint. And the fact of the matter is you stand up here and preach, and you don't know what an alternate viewpoint is. And if you don't like fascism, don't play industrial music, because that's what it's all about, guys. Did you hear that? Wait that a guy's the first bit on the wait next second, record. Wait. And that was right around the time the Beastie Boys released their album, which started with, this is the first track on our new record, so I thought that parallel was beautiful there. Do you believe that that's sort of the case then, that industrial music is or is inherently connected to fascism? Well, I think the music industry is connect, it is the sound of capitalism. If music is the sound of life, then the music industry is the sound of capitalism in general. In specific... <laughs> Uh, any kind of men's aggressive music is absolutely guaranteed uh, to promote and to foster a fascist response among men and increasingly some some women, you know, occasionally. Uh, it To me, it's just uh, at the time, uh, I know personally that I couldn't see around the creative, uh, you know, having to be hemmed in by being in a band or by getting, quote, the message out through the channels of the music industry. Mm. The music industry, yeah, the music industry was, uh, was always uh, a labyrinthine oppressor, and uh, yet every day that we got, you know, paid, we were paying into that labyrinthine oppressor, and we were continuing to support capitalism, white supremacy, and all the bad things about America, but... Uh, you know, a, uh, I'm not making any excuses for myself, but when uh, when you're raising kids in America, the you know the crippling requirement of money becomes more intense, and uh, you know uh, people are constantly rolling on their own principles in order to quote survive in this society. And I was no different, and I was unhappy about that. But <clears throat> I was unable during the course of the band to do anything to really. Uh, globally critique the relation of the music industry to general life in America, and it's not only its propaganda impact, but also its nuts and bolts economic sort of assumptions that it it reinforces and fosters in people about all the aspects of their lives. Being in a band and performing and recording and dis, you know distributing products and, and marketing and promotion are all the other hallmarks of any kind of business. But sadly, they're also the hallmarks of parenthood and childhood and school and your job and your relationships. And, uh, you know, I wasn't ready to, you know, see that stuff then. So in the time, we were just trying to seize uh, what had happened in the late 80s with the great emergence of political hip-hop and when the wall came down and Rodney King, those happened to be those times, the uh, uprising of people around the world uh, around ancient, you know, outcries of injustice. Mm. And so as a, as a band at that time, we did uh, what we thought was everything possible for a band to do. But at the end of the day, we were still a corporate concern and we were still living the Spinal Tap life. And we were still constantly maintaining and supporting the existence of capitalism and all the other things that go into it, white supremacy, colonialism, all the things that we talked about thematically, but we never really, uh, you know, knew enough, or I didn't know enough to critique the actual existence of a system that organizes people around the assumptions of the larger society. And the more radical activist, you know, movements that came out of that still ended up being largely academic and and popular commodified, uh, you know, uh, 
economic systems where people either got jobs as organizers or as educators, but every check that gets cashed, or, you know, in, in the service of that is a check that's uh, supporting the system that's still going on. Sure. Um, yeah, and, you know, I feel, you know, as a high school English teacher myself, I feel definitely as though I'm in that, you know, nexus region between, you know, working for a system that repulses me in many ways, but also having access to young people and giving them new things to think about and trying to push for change in that way. Um, you know, as Wu-Tang Clan said, cash rules everything around me, and at the end of the day, everybody got to eat. So it's it's definitely uh, a bind that I think everybody finds themselves in to some degree. Um well, I, I agree with that, and, I, and we can talk about this later if you're going to ask about it, but the thing that really stunned me uh, uh, in the years after that, uh, having, you know, run more with uh, crowds that were, they were getting away from traditional forms of, quote, activism mm -hmm. and really uh, doing DIY versions of enacting the old principles of the Black Panthers and the Zapatistas, and, uh, you know, they prove during Occupy that everybody got to eat does not, in fact, require having a job to make money because mm -hmm. I personally, you know, I lived in a camp or visited several of them where all of the infrastructure required to take care not only of cities' entire homeless populations, but also uh, do incredible work around uh, mental health counseling and feeding the hungry, all done for free. Mm -hmm. All done with donations, donated time, supplies, food, medicine. And so to me, that's what really scared power about Occupy is that mm -hmm. it was, in fact, enacting these older traditions, again, all innovated by oppressed uh, communities of color in this country and other countries that didn't make the requirement of everybody having to eat based on upholding uh, a tyrannical and a violent system of economy. Sure. So I be I was with you. Uh, I felt like uh, I didn't know which way to go there. And uh, if you do have kids, you know what I'm talking about as far as the, the crippling effect of just needing money, you think. But I really saw, you know, 20 years of people trying to work through that and trying to prove uh, that the things that we need are, in fact, not, you know, they're not requiring... Uh, basic capitalist assumptions, food and and security and love and, and mental health help for a sick nation because we're all pretty mentally ill. Mm -hmm. That shit comes for free. People are there, whether licensed or unlicensed, and are there to help. They're there to feed people. They're there to feed them the sound of help. That's what I did in the Occupy camps anyways by organizing music. And uh, just the, the sheer number of helpful bodies uh, absolutely outweighed anybody uh, coming in saying, no, this is not going to do anything. We need a platform. We need a unified campaign, and we need politicians to go represent it. And everyone kind of gave the finger to that. But they, and, they, and additionally, they didn't waste any time fighting that debate when there were people who were not down with what they were doing. They went somewhere else and did what they wanted to do. And so there was an important element of alienation that uh, historically has been part and parcel of all the social justice movements, the alienating element of if you want to help, you got to do a bunch of grunt work that you hate and you got to get tear gas and you got to also get ready for an outcome that you don't want. 
But this time around, everyone was still ready to get tear gassed. But everyone did something that was humanly uh, enriching for them. And as a result of that, you had a new sort of landscape. And, you know, you see that in Ferguson in the last week. Sure. In Missouri, people are not one giant uh, seething mob that can be surrounded by one giant army. You have any untold numbers of small organizers and people working with them moving around freely, sometimes overlapping because they're doing the same thing, sometimes at odds with each other, so people keep them away from each other. And this is, A, harder to uh, dumb down and simplify for the media to distribute it to the masses because it's less of a mass movement, in my opinion. And to me, that's not a grand slam proposition. But then revolution is not baseball. Mm-hmm. You know, it's uh, the the best victories are the next day completely destroyed and uh, reconsidered and reevaluated and harshly critiqued. And everyone anew can create something else the following day and work on what, you know, they want to work on and... Uh, I find that really inspiring, but uh, the time the Consolidated was together was like a second or third incarnation of the memory of the civil rights organizing periods where mass movements were still essential and uh, and mass movement behaviors were required of those who wanted to be involved in them. And I think people, have, you know, they finally got the courage to say, no, that's killing me. That's making me mentally sick and unable to uh, do this without being burnt out, and I'm sick of being burnt out. So they started to actually take care of themselves by doing shit that was healthy for them. And they found, you know, common people all over the place to do it with. And when they had disagreements, you know, they went their separate ways. And these are all amazing lessons for how I think uh, everybody can eat without having to eat the shit of the system. Sure, sure. Um, so, you know, with, you mentioned earlier that Consolidated was well known for engaging the audience and including a lot of those discussions on the albums. Um, anything you want to say about it, like favorite moments of audience interaction or maybe what was a difficult experience with that? Uh, there's too many to count. I mean, there's, uh, we recorded some of the funny bits and the absurd bits and the most poignant and articulate bits. Uh, actually, the things that didn't even get recorded at the show were even better because these were after the quote show was done and we were all hanging out by the van and I was either surrounded by racist skinheads and trying to talk them down and, and work, do white anti-racist organizing or people, you know, learning about each other, uh, you know, without it being in front of everybody. It was just more like uh, a human involvement. Uh, it wasn't mediated by the fact that we were and on the road coming to your town and performing, giving you a monologue on stage and telling you to buy our T-shirts or something. It was, uh, I wish we had played music after the shows and invited all the people to bring their instruments then, because that's what we do now. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and on one of the uh, audience interaction bits, you had a, a discussion with a guy who called himself Murder One, and then um, he started, you know, he was you put down some beats, and he was rapping over him, and I guess you faded out because you didn't want to be profiting off of his music or whatever. And then on a liner note later on, you said, you know, Murder One, where are you? Did you ever connect again with him or hear from him? That's a funny story because we did, in fact, connect with him once more, and we came so close to doing a track for him. Uh, I'm too, you know, I'm too much of a wiped out, demented drug casualty to remember the details, but uh, 
that didn't end up, you know, materializing for uh, numerous reasons. But we did visit with him again, Antoine, and uh, wherever he is, I hope he's making music. Uh, we're just, uh, we were already moving so fast and bringing on all kinds of artists. But that particular moment is the kind of spontaneous, funky, you know, party that tells truth like no one can tell it. We certainly, as white, privileged American men, couldn't have told that. And so, yeah, uh, examples like that every day made the grind and the hypocrisy of it uh, a lot more inspiring and gave us a lot more juice to, you know, at least try to to invite more people to tell their truth and make their music with us. Sure. And, you know, you also did collaborations with artists like Paris and Carol Adams and the Yeastie Girls. Um, Anything you can tell us about how those partnerships happened, how satisfied you were with the results? Uh, well, I've never been satisfied with the results of a consolidated record. I felt bad on behalf of those great artists that we couldn't uh, somehow, uh, you know, bring their great gifts to the kind of level that we wanted, although it was amazing meeting them. The, the reason that a lot of those things, and you'd have to interview him for this, but it, my drummer, Phil, is a persistent, obnoxious motherfucker, and he basically <laughs> compelled fools to come get down with us, you know, not in any obnoxious way, but... Uh, uh, he was, uh, you know, he was a networker, and he knew the talents these people had. And, uh, you know, when we had met them, we realized it was commonality. And I think those folks realized that, as white guys saying the shit, we needed some help, and they realized that our intentions weren't exploited in any intentional way. Uh, so that, you know, they came and donated some time, and hopefully, it gave them some juice. I know in the case of the Easter Girls, it was tragic. The whole uh, proposition of them re-recording You Suck, which became the most known song by the band, uh, had horrific consequences for the original members of that group and the current members of it who performed with us. And, pro- you know, these are the sad stories of capitalism in the music industry that I hear day in and day out. And I saw them and I contributed to them. I have a lot of shame about that. See, I never heard about but, that. Uh, what, I'm sorry, could you just briefly elaborate? Like, uh, what, what exactly well, happened? I, Well, again, I don't know all the stinging details because I wasn't in the group, but I do know that there were numerous uh, members of uh, the Yeastie Girls originally, and by the time those three gals recorded that song, uh, remix of it with us, original members were really bummed, and then the f***ing label swooped in and pulled a number on them, even though I had advised them not to deal with our f***ing label because we we were leaving it, you know, and, uh, mm. you know, uh, probably usurped them out of whatever royalties and definitely usurped and invisibilized the authors, the original authors who mm. weren't, quote, any longer in the group. And that just causes bad blood. And right. you get used to that because it's like business. Everybody accepts that there's going to be bloodshed and that fools are going to be dissed and hearts broken and all kinds of people are turning on each other and, uh, it's moving really fast if you're so, quote, fortunate slash cursed to have anything happening. You're just swept along and you're trying to, you know, abide by some kind of basic human principles. But the basic principles of business don't allow for basic human principles. So everybody kind of dug their ditch there. And I learned my lessons and I know other fools learned theirs. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, it is amazing that those kinds happen to be like, uh, three years ago during Occupy, when there happened to have been, uh, for whatever random or predictable reasons, uh, an uptick in the resistance against 
our general day-to-day tyranny and uh, and a lot of things happened and that that was the only reason that we were able to move at all because we certainly didn't play any kind of music that was uh, associatable with the other prevailing trends we weren't a hip-hop group we weren't a grunge group we were none of those things we were just uh, basically commentators on the state of uh, society and the music within it and so other people i think consider themselves musicians and performers and wanted to do with us because it could all help us make a move but by then every move that was made for me was a tragedy and i was just dying to get the out of it (laughs) sure but before you did you released a solo project called child man um anything you want to say about where that came from and why it had to be separate from consolidated uh that was in the midst of all that and uh Basically, you know, when we uh, made our worst deal with the devil, uh, the way that the artist can attempt to protect themselves is to force the other oppressor uh, to, like, make concessions, you know, whether it be, in Mark and Phil's case, a, quote, production deal as, quote, producers, or for me to make a, quote, solo project. And the solo project for me was just, uh, it was literally demos. It was uh, it was done, you know, with uh, no real professional production uh, emphasis, and it was about very personal things going on for me. And it was appropriate that it wasn't a consolidated record, but at the same time, it you know uh, that's my shit, and uh, it probably bears the hallmarks of whatever my shit was at that time. And uh, you know, I, I did that, and sadly, uh, I. I failed to credit Paul and Ryan who played, you know, on a track or whatever, wherever those dudes are. Sorry, but uh, I never made a penny off it. And hopefully you all, I know that uh, they went on their ways to do great things. And, uh, you know, I just, uh, I wanted to get some personal things that were going on that were outside the scope of political issues that I wanted to, you know, open up for public discussion. Although all of the bits on that record are about the same issues because life was life and uh, I was making that sound of my life at that time. Sure. Um, and then there was Business of Punishment. Um, there was Dropped, which marked a significant change in both personnel and sound for Consolidated. Uh, what, what can you tell us about what caused that change? Yeah, uh, well, I feel like uh, the major label experience was the final straw, and even though we were still signed, I know that, uh, you know, Mark and Phil and I were not happy. Uh, you know, we've... We were, I can only speak for myself, saying I was unhappy with many things. And uh, uh, when that came around, uh, the band kind of uh, exploded off. And so at that point, I had been in talks with a great, you know, friend of mine, a hero uh, to many, John Stoltenberg, who wrote Refusing to Be a Man, Mm -hmm. who was the partner of the late Andrea Dworkin. And he wanted me to make a series of music videos about the pathologies of manhood education and so at that point uh i i tried to make a double album one that was really dark and awful about the consequences of manhood life and one that may have offered you know what other people called redemptive potential or whatever but at that point it wasn't a band it was uh it was simply me uh with mark pistol who did engineer it for me and uh you know, we've continued working together ever since. Uh, but uh, it it was it was a clear sort of sound of my fatigue 
in the music industry uh, of, of the drop, and then Takoon was a little bit, you know, had other positive things going on. But for me, it was kind of uh, the beginning of working out what would get me out of the music industry and able to play music still. Sure. But it, it was still very much of the music industry and a very simple sort of couple of pop albums, the most very pop, uh, you know, that I'd done. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'd, I'd seen you, I'd seen Consolidated in uh, St. Petersburg, Florida, uh, right after Play More Music, I suppose, and then I saw you again right after Dropped, and they were such different experiences. Um, it was it was frustrating for me, because right when Dropped came out, the, there was very little audience, and, and the energy just felt very low, and it was not what I was hoping to see, um, but obviously that's a, a confluence of factors that lead to something like that. Um but I, I came up listening to some really hardcore sort of bass-heavy political industrial music, not just consolidated, but also disposable heroes of hypocrisy and ministry and others. And that music, you know, as I've said, provided an intensity and a drive that I really couldn't find anywhere else. Today, it seems like political music lives in hip-hop and hardcore, and, you know, there's obviously um, sort of folk elements and things, um, but not industrial, really. Uh, Michael Franti's gone in a very different direction. And um, Do you think there's a place for political industrial music today, or do you think that was a product of a different time well i think the ex- uh, the unwillingness to accept the political you know resistance through anything in the music industry is a self-canceling phrase uh was something i wasn't ready to acknowledge at that time and i think a lot of people who still live in the world they have pretty much two options you know you're in the game and everything that goes with it or question mark and so for most people who, you know, had to go through this, uh, the, the tail end of 500 years of bourgeois society saying you're either A, a quote artist, or you're B, a consumer of artists, mm. in order to keep maintaining your claim that you're a f***ing artist, you have to have a product to sell. And, you know, Ministry and, and Franti and I are all different examples of, you know, people who dealt with that and, uh, you know, we've gone the ways that we've gone. And then now a whole couple of generations have come on in the, in the, uh, aftermath of that. However, there's one cataclysmic change that, uh, forever is going to, you know, change the way people that didn't grow up where you did, who had this sort of memory of what music meant and how it got to you and what inspired you. Uh, they're never even going to remember that industrial music had anything to do with politics or that politics had anything to do with business because they've come up in an era where there's no linear historical way in the Internet to understand uh, actual history, music history, the way that you and I did. Now people are viewing the infinite possibilities of a horizontal screen and they pick and choose from it, and some things sound industrial and some things sound political. But at the same time, again, the ultimate sin there is to simply be a band. It doesn't matter if you're Al Jurgensen or Michael Franti or me. When you get paid to perform a monologue, you know, in front of people, you're maintaining this uh, ancient, well, not now it's more ancient, about 500 years old, this societal relationship of consumers and producers and bourgeois individuals who want to call all the shots and uh, you know the history of black music in America shows a great trajectory of how those 
uh, how those different sort of uh, historical and technological innovations affected people during the times of, uh, you know, big band jazz and uh, uh, going into bebop and then going into free jazz and then, you know, coming down into funk and R&B and then coming down further into hip-hop and then coming down all the way to the bottom where you have you know, millions of white kids thinking that Justin Bieber has something to do with hip hop. <laughs> right. And so, yeah, so uh, we're in a, we're still living in history, but the, uh, not only the technical innovation of file sharing that destroyed the profits of the uh, music industry, they not only uh, heralded the end of the music industry as you and I knew it back then, but they also heralded the end of America and capitalism because if you can't protect digital uh, profits, eventually all of the physical things are going to be digitally producible for free, as we've seen, and that's going to, you know, that's going to jam a big stake in the heart of capitalism. But no one wants to hear that because everyone wants to keep saying, "Well, what about? Can't we have a cooler band? One that's more rad? One that, you know, accepts less money and less compromise from the industry?" But the point is. If you're in a band, you've already made a giant amount of acceptance to all kinds of systems that you would think had nothing to do with playing music. You know, they all have to do with uh, social hierarchy. And, uh, you know, the way I look at that is if you know, quote, bands, take, you know, take uh, ministry or, or hypocrisy or consolidated. They were numerous people, but in some ways the public knew one of them and then the real dirty work and the heavy lifting is usually done by the drummer and the bassist. They're making the f***ing audience dance, but no one knows them. And then you've got the poser out in front, you know, or the guitar wizard, you know, spewing out the corporate hymns, and you have, you know, the technological innovation being stomp-boxed by the, you know, the guitar poser or whatever. I was that guy. And these are not just a descriptions of like what people in bands do these are important sort of economic analysis of the social division of labor all across society it's you know you work in a school so you're in your class you have students you have to fill the vessel with the information even though you'd prefer to have human interaction and co-interlocute with your students so both of you can learn and teach at the same time but none of that's allowed you got to get students to get their grades or else you're going to be on the block. And now, uh, not so much in English, but obviously you're aware of the controversy over uh, the development of history curriculums. <laughs> because oh, sure. the religious right and uh, common combined with the evaporation of the importance of history through the last 20 years of technocratic innovation has left what a lot of people thought, again, were intractable historical assumptions, which is, you know, uh, we did we did tell people that uh, science could tell truth, and so your religious went away. We did tell people that political economy could replace, you know, religious superstition, and it should go away. But in the end, uh, religious people don't buy it, and, and even, you know... Uh, Secular folks are so disgusted by what the secular world is doing that they don't have the power to stop re-emerging waves of uh, historical revision coming from the well-funded, idiotic right. 
And so that's going on. I should make some kind of analogy to the world you live in every day, Eric. But uh, all across the board, whether it's your job or your family or your assumptions about society, uh, you know, we we live in a time that's uh, never been more depoliticized and never been more dumbed down. And simultaneously, that contains the seeds of new awareness and new forms of resistance. So whenever it's at its life, music is at its worst. It's also, uh, in some ways, uh, at a really great place. I sure, think yeah. that's where we are now. Yeah, and I feel like, you know, one of the things that I love about teaching is that it, it provides me opportunities to engage in some of that dialectic with the students, and uh, you're absolutely right that I cannot co-interlocute with the students in the way that I would love to most of the time, but every once in a while, you know, when we're reading The Bluest Eye, I can give them, okay, look, what does it mean to have a male gaze, and, and, and what does, you know, this history of oppression have to do with who we are as people and how we relate to things like color and things like that, um... So it, yeah, I, 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 I can, I, there are those same struggles that go on in terms of the curriculum of, um, of English classes. Um, although when we get to things like gerunds and adjectives, it's, it's a little less, uh, open to those discussions. Although we can talk about prescriptive versus descriptive grammar and all the rest of it. Um, but coming back to music a little bit, I'm curious to know, you know, leaving as, as given the, you know, comments about the industry, I'm just curious about how you see the balance between energy and music, the sound that can sort of sound the alarm, so to speak, uh, or push people to take action and the need for music to soothe the soul on the other hand. Well, I would just say those are two really romantically reduced ideas of what music does. Music does everything, because music is the sound of all life. So there's music that totally inspires your ass to move and your mind to move and to, and to uh, have all kinds of fantasies about uh, different things. There's music that there is there specifically to soothe when you're you know too wound up. And there's music to do everything else. There's music not only to organize revolutions by and to just simply escape reality by, but there's music to... Uh, the, the decisive forms that I guess I focused on are the music's designed to control people and to provide surveillance as background sounds. And, uh, you know, where we are with that now is uh, sound is is gone so far into the area of car commercial surveillance and, uh, you know, Apple's sort of standardizing of an entire world of alienated consumers of single songs, that now you're in a place where you don't even have the collective opportunities to share what you're hearing in whatever kind of music you like, because everybody's wired in, and it's a silent rave, by and large, everywhere in the world, unless you're imposing the free music in the public space and inviting other people to join you. And believe me, that causes more disturbance than simply, you know, saying I'm busking and I have a bucket and would you put money in it? Or I'm playing a show at a club and can I convince my seven friends from work to keep coming to see me at the same show for 10 years of my band? Uh, music is the sound of life and death and important rights of uh, all societies throughout time, but at, from the time it became an institutionalized commodity, it, it's mostly been the sound of control. And sadly, consolidated and public enemy and all and all affronty and whoever you're thinking of, uh, 
you know, even Paris and, and whoever the most radical motherfuckers there are out there would have to admit now that the uh, contradictions of being in the system were such that it gave pause to your confidence about what you were doing and why, because you saw so much futility as a result of, pe- you know, of putting your heart and your sound on the line, having people say they're really inspired by it, go out and try to put it into practice, and yet we still live in a time that is no different from the Dred Scott time. <laughs> and so that's a, you know, that's a really powerful negative function of music. And it doesn't, in today's world, it doesn't matter what kind, because aesthetics mean nothing. Aesthetics only mean how you market your ability to control. Some people don't like loud music or dancing, so they use soft acoustic music for car commercials and other people like radical revolutionary music so they use rage against the machine for pennzoil commercials and uh to me the thing to study in music is that it's not simply uh a cultural phenomenon of humans that is something we do after our day is done or we do because we're a tortured artist and we we have to do it Music is uh, everything. <laughs> it's just the sound of everything. And so every aspect of life has corresponding sounds to it. I certainly hadn't developed any of these ideas during Consolidated, and I wish I had because I'd be less you know, close to death now and probably less bummed about the Consolidated experience. But it takes being uh, for years in something where you're beating your head against the wall wondering why there's no fruits of this labor until you realize the actual fruits of the labor were born when you formed a band and agreed to do monological performance for people. And it's only, you know, at a time when people all decide, oh, we're not artists and consumers, we're human beings, and we all have the birthright to create in whatever mediums we like, and we can do it alone, and we can do it in groups, and we learn about who we are and who other people are by collaborating. We learn how we can do together with some people and then there's other people we shouldn't do it with and these are telling us huge uh, truths about our society but people don't want to look at music that way because it's too depressing and real (laughs) they want to look at it as though if we just had cool bands like public enemy and fugazi again or sly and the family stone and john coltrane again then we could bring you know to life uh, in a different way than capitalism has prescribed for us. But all those groups existed and they all suffered their own spinal tap demises because they still identified with the most fundamental aspect of the system, which was they were a, they were a producer of commodities in this capitalist system. And it, depending on, you know, what your aesthetics and the time you were in, they had different uh, versions of that outcome. In the outcome of Fly and the Family Stone, there was immense universal acknowledgement and popularity and subsequent human degradation and the usual spinal tap drug and alcohol and mental illness. In the court, you know, in the case of the free jazz movement, which actually tried to create a new understanding of the black man's cry for freedom beyond bebop, they really did have a technical innovation and an aesthetic innovation by letting go of all assumptions of harmonics and melody and time. But then four or five years after that, when about the time Train died, 
many of those musicians realized they couldn't eat by playing a 90-minute solo of screeching bird sounds on their horn. So many of them went back down into the music industry and became the innovators of R&B and funk and, and then later on hip-hop. But that signals, in some, you know, some might say, an actual uh, a degradation, not a continued innovation. Because, as you know, bebop, uh, as it was described in The Cry of Jazz, <laughs> it contained the entire range of expression of black America's uh, cry of injustice and their shouts of joy and everything in between. But at the end of the 16-bar head, it had to start right back over, and there was no escaping that. Well, many of those assumptions can be applied to hip-hop, except hip-hop had reduced it even further to one bar. They still might be you know, spitting over 16 bars, but the music ends and starts over after one bar. And so it's an even more uh, sort of musically and socially crippling limitation there. And what I'm thinking is... Uh, the 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 way people hold on to the their identity by saying I'm an artist is a it's an important thing to address because as soon as everyone lets go of their desperate claim to artistness, then they become potential human beings again, and who knows what their aesthetics are? I can tell you personally that I. Uh, I got worse and worse as a musician the entire time I was getting more and more bankable as a music industry producer. And it wasn't until I fully gave up on formalizing ideas and delivering them as a monologue to audiences and recording them and say, you know, uh, stockpiling the death of those ideas for later sale that I realized, hey, you can have fun with anybody who's hanging around and sometimes the weirder and stranger the better and you can also uh, you can totally grow into yourself uh, and become yourself aesthetically and humanly in a way that you can't when you're having to pimp a product that's called yourself if that makes sense no it does make sense and I, I, I sorry yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I appreciate all of those comments and um, you know there's no doubt that you know, I'll take hip hop as an example because I did, I created a class about hip hop music and and you know rap music and hip hop culture and I connect it back to jazz and to the blues and I try to teach the students a lot about you know where it comes from and how the stuff they hear on the radio station doesn't usually reflect what you know the great legacies that gave birth to modern music. Um, and I guess I've seen I, you know I, I would push back a little bit on the notion that hip hop is so limiting because I've seen it produce great things in the students that I've worked with in terms of encouraging them to get up. We do, you know, weekly open mics and like they get up in front of the class and they'll read something they've written. I feel like that can be a moment of that humanness where they interact. And I know you're talking about the capitalist product element of it, which is definitely not what we're making. Um, but I do see hip hop as having a lot of liberatory power when it is a product of community activity and individuals being part of a cipher and so forth. I, I totally agree, and I'm sure everyone who's into all great forms of black music would concur. Uh, I was actually talking aesthetically uh, and not about the rappers, although if rappers you know, wanted to have something interesting after 30 years of a program four-beat measure, right. then maybe they could get the f*** off the bar map, and that would allow the DJ or the pers person who is technically standing there 
and in the old days used to actually create music live like a conventional traditional musician with two turntables is now essentially standing in front of the console that controls them and they just hit playback right. and they stand there while people spit over that and all I'm saying I'm not the you know I'm not going into the sort of the human uh, expression of that which is that people still believe that uh, technocracy can answer our problems and even if you know hip hop now is pretty much the province of by white people and for white people and about white people, as many black hip-hop scholars have been saying for years, that's not even addressing the fact that there, you know, there had been constant attempts in the previous incarnations of great black music, and I should, you, this doesn't have to be in the interview, but it should, because I wanted to recommend these to you for your classes. Mm -hmm. These are three Bibles that I teach that are related to what we're talking about. Uh, that I teach in classes with, and one is uh, Blues People by Leroy Jones oh, of sure. Baraka. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I, don't, I don't know if you're, you're using that, but that's a great one. There's oh, another yeah. one called Noise, The Political Economy of Music by Jacques Attali. Have not read that one. And then, Yeah, and then any of the other uh, works on culture and music and the culture industry by Adorno and Horkheimer. Mm -hmm. I think you get so much uh, possibility there of what can happen differently. But then... Uh, Anyway, so we're going back to what's powerful in those idioms. And, and what I think is powerful is the fact that uh, they came out of something so strong. They came out of a foundation of a culture oppressed for so long that had been creating all of the uh, cultural innovations and phenomena that this country is known for, that when, you know, hip-hop becomes you know, whoever today's de jure uh, white hip hopper is, somewhere black artists are looking and they're sounding out new ideas that will escape that. And they are fully aware, like the beboppers were aware, that even if they create something so innovative and so foreign to white culture, white supremacy culture will love it universally acknowledge it and then immediately begin to debase it. Right. I'm not saying I don't have my place in shame in that. Uh, it doesn't have anything to do with intentions. It has to do with the massive, deep-seated uh, you know, genetics of how culture of ancient religions and modern political economy, they infect us and they inform us with, without even knowing it, even if we're trying to find it and, and examine it. And so... I think now you're in another period where a sound of a different life is emerging. And my, you know, uh, my place in that is to encourage people to realize that it's not a musical innovation. It's a social innovation. The idea that a new music would emerge now is not based on, you know, coming up with a slicker type of uh, fitting style or a, a different technological way to make beats. It's a way to get over, you know, controlling music and assuming that we understand music, because as Adorno said, we don't. Music understands us. And in the future, if there's going to be a profound uh, revolution, the sound of that would be what I think I see in the political and the social acts of recent uh, resistance movements, which is it's horizontal, it's, it's not... It, you know, it's not about money. It's not about engaging in like coercion of mass movements and consensus. It's about acknowledging difference and acknowledging not only difference across 
experience levels, but aesthetics and all of that stuff combined. And so I guess the way to explain what I do is I just go to where friends or strangers are on the street and I take my guitar and I throw a bag of toys out there and motherfuckers start showing up and they come from entirely different worlds, literally. <laughs> and so to have 20 or 30 people on the street all with varying degrees of, you know, musical experience, meaning world virtuoso shredders to five-year-olds banging on toys on the ground and people <laughs> claim to never play music before, you're creating a sound of a different kind of society, one that doesn't have to, you know, it doesn't have to hierarchy and standardize and categorize things the way capitalism does. And it's completely uh, separate from use, uh, money, it's completely separate from a single visionary's monologue. It's completely separate for having to save it later and then try to sell copies of that dead truth. And what it is, it's, uh, it's making the sound of people deciding how they can deal with themselves and, and how they'll deal with others. And to me, that's, you know, that's the best that I can do, and it seems to be having an awesome impact wherever I go and uh, I'm hoping people jump onto it. The people who have a coveted gig are desperately getting all their reunions together so they can keep profiting off the kit that they had in 91 or whatever or they're completely fed up with music and they claim to no longer be musicians which is crazy. You know, all kinds of insanely talented people are hit by a lot of sort of restrictions that are really uh, numbing and they're really sort of uh, limiting. And until the real creative musicians get together with some beginners and, you know, some drunk passers-by and some five-year-olds banging on sticks and buckets, they won't ever hear the incredible sound of a, a way different music because everything uh, has to come from the preconceived, uh, planned out sort of execution of a visionary's artistic statement. And that's, you know, that's the sound of bourgeois capitalism for 500 years. And we've had some insane bourgeois virtuosos that have inspired and continue to inspire all of us. But those people lived in historically uh, oppressive and oppressed times. And, you know, many of those artists died unhappy, even if the world universally acknowledged their genius they, on some levels, realized that the world wasn't hearing them. And so they, you know, they reacted the way uh, people in Ferguson are reacting. You know, you can, you can give me more concessions, you can say certain to me, but I'm not going to be happy because I'm not living like a human. I might be providing you the soundtrack for your comfortable middle-class life, and you may have paid me money, but now I'm mentally ill and I'm going to die young and I'm pissed off. That's, I'm just imagining a composite story of many virtuosic uh, uh, instrumentalists and vocalists and songwriters of the past who, if in fact we lived in a human world and, and we didn't live in America with you know, it all being about capitalism and white supremacy and, and shallow sort of uh, attempts to say that we resist that, then the people who are virtuosos could actually, you know, they could guide other people to a greater understanding of themselves, and they could guide themselves to a greater understanding of themselves. When you're just the star, and it's just you or the three of you or whatever, you don't, you know, you're not allowed to take on external input because uh, 
that messes with marketing. Right, right. That might well, jeopardize the unity of the product. So, you know, you, you have, ever since Beethoven, you have 300 years of that shit. Sure, sure. And now, uh, yeah, so now I think the really exciting thing is people showing up because of whatever their reasons are, and then you figuring out how to welcome each other so that you're not stepping on fools and you're not stepping on yourself, that you get to actually grow and enjoy and have a party and get better and challenge yourself and be useful to others. Sure. And well, that's what know, I think Consolidated couldn't do that free music is doing. Right. Well, you know, I really appreciate the emphasis on community and, and people becoming more human through the music. And I've, I've enjoyed seeing Michael Franny talk about being human because um, I think that's something that music can definitely do for us and help us to come together and uh, make a better world, which has always been sort of my focus. And uh, I, obviously it's been your focus. So I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us today. And uh, is there anything else you wanted to add at the end here? Uh, no, uh, just uh, go out and make your own music. Make the sound of your world. I'm saying this to you, myself, and whoever might listen. And, you know, if you got extra time in there, free music and stop America. Didactic Syncast is a production of the floating grain of Eric S. Piotrowski, which is solely responsible for its content. This program is a joint venture of Ribonucleic Records and Garrison Multimedia. Our show is made possible by a grant from the Fargus Foundation. Some restrictions may apply. See SOAR for details. Fight the power. So powerful.